The preaching is in this one verse, Galatians chapter 6, and at verse 16. Galatians 6, and at verse, uh, rather at verse 14. Galatians 6, and at verse 14. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. This word that is here before us of glory is a word that is translated boast. And so when Paul says, God forbid or let it never be that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is saying, perhaps in ways that we can better understand, let it never be that I should boast in anything but in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, brethren, you need no in-depth survey to realize that throughout the world, men, women, and children are filling the air with the sound of boasting. And we realize, of course, that there are many things for which men boast. All of them have something to do with perceived excellence, with accomplishments. Many times, it's self-centered. It's full of pride and arrogance. But other times, it's pointing out others' accomplishments, whether they be with reference to matters of health or wealth or education or athletics. There is the ascribing of excellence to these various spheres of life. And in directing such attention, there is a boasting of it. Now, this can be done in ways that are far more than just words. You see this, of course, in bumper stickers. You see this in social media, posts that come up. There's, of course, the well-known idea of the humble brag that is found, it seems, everywhere that man is today. But the point is this. Boasting is ubiquitous. Pride is the cause, of course, and as pride is found in every man's heart, give it time, and pride shall show itself in boasting. Such, most inappropriately, is not uncommon even among professed Christians. There is, of course, in our day, those who would boast of their numbers, or of their long-standing tradition, or of their long-standing heritage, or of their missions, or other such things, of their ministries, and all of these things that come to the fore of their thought. There are others who would boast of their practices, and say, look what we do, and of course we realize that there are seasons upcoming in the near future, in the calendar, where people will speak with great and high words of various traditions which they observe. Brethren, all of these things are, of course, commonplace. And that doesn't mean that they are acceptable. It means that they are familiar to us. We know them. We know the way of man. Well, this is nothing new. Paul actually dealt with it in his day. In particular circumstances, perhaps differing from our own, But in Paul's day, particularly as he considers the churches of that region known as Galatia, he sees, as he himself experienced, that there were false teachers who had crept in and had started teaching the Christians that if they wanted to advance in the way of holiness, their best way was to begin observing again certain Old Covenant ceremonies, most notably circumcision. And so the Gentiles, of course, who had not been circumcised, were being brought into the church by grace through faith. And then those who are variously known as Judaizers and so on would come to them and say, well, of course you're in the church, but if you really want to advance, you need to be circumcised. This is a long-standing a tradition. It goes back to the father of the faith, Abraham. Oh, we can imagine the strong rhetoric and arguments and appeals that were made. And then, of course, with that was this idea that if you wish to advance, you should be observing the dietary laws and perhaps even uh, reimagining the various festivals and feast days 
that were scattered throughout the Jewish calendar. And pretty quickly we start to see something that is not uncommon to our own day. We see these entrances of additions unto the simplicity and the liberty purchased for us by Christ Jesus. Paul sees this all. He even sees it in one who was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know well the account as he gives it in Galatians chapter 2. He's there. He sees even Peter. And he sees Peter making this uh, Jewish sort of distinction. Verse 9, when James Cephas, that's Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen, that is the Gentiles, and they unto the circumcision, that is the Jews. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Why? Well, it's told to us. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And so Peter is withstood to the face by Paul, not over some trivial, debatable matter, but rather over what Paul sees to be a forward march against the gospel of Christ. And now we come to the text. And Paul has been dealing with this in a variety of ways throughout this epistle. But now he comes and he, of course, acknowledges again those who are glorying in bodily and physical and fleshly uh, observances But then he says in verse 14, God forbid, or literally in the Greek, let it never be. It's a passive way of acknowledging God. Let it never be that I should glory, that I should boast. But he notes one exception. He doesn't say, let it never be that I should boast. He doesn't say, let it never be found in my lips or in my life or in my approach that there's something for which I boast. He says, let it never be that I should glory or boast except this one thing, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says further, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Brethren, there is a depth in this passage alone that could cause us for weeks to consider perhaps well longer than that. We wish to focus on this as Paul in one summary fashion says, the whole of their error is overcome by rightly discerning what we have in Christ Jesus. This isn't anything new. It's something that Paul has elsewhere dealt with. You see it in Colossians when Paul is dealing with those who would add unto the observance of Christ the shadow of Uh, various Old Testament ceremonies, verse 16 of chapter 2, Colossians, let no man therefore judge you in meat or drink, etc. He acknowledges, of course, those who say, verse 21, touch not, taste not, handle not, which are, verse 22, after the commandments and doctrines of men. What an interesting statement. Those things that are being said have nothing more for their author than men. Brethren, if it only has the authorizing of men, it has no binding uh, uh, oversight of our souls. He says in verse 23, these things have a show and appearance of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. But you'll notice that he actually brings up something significant related to our text as well, in Colossians 2 and verse 6. He says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Verse 9, For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power. And he then, in verses 11 and 12 of that chapter, indicate our union with Christ. 
And notice verse 13, you being dead in your sins, the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, and so on. Well, we could carry on with this epistle and multiply other instances. But what Paul is indicating is that the answer to all of those false teachings is a right understanding of what we have in Christ. And when we discern that, not only will we cast off all of those errors and entanglements of false observances of the Jewish law rekindled and all of those things which parallel it, but we will positively make our boast in Christ alone. These things aren't unrelated. The reason that Paul is able to withstand these additions to the liberty we have in Christ is because he sees the all-surpassing excellency of what he has in Christ Jesus. Brethren, note this for a moment. When men and women do not see that, it's then that they start to add additional observances. It's then that they start to add things which have no warrant of Christ's commission. The various markings on foreheads, the various multiplying of holy days, all of the vestments that religious men start to wear, all of the observances of the days of the calendar is a testimony. Not necessarily, we don't mean to say, of an unregenerate person, But we do mean to say in the strength of Paul's assertion that it is an indication that the all-surpassing excellence of Christ is not being discerned as it should. And what is needed for us is a greater understanding of who Christ is and what Christ has done and the all-excelling greatness of His person and work which we are to boast in, which will help us then all our life in this world. We'll consider then two things. Firstly, in general, what it is to boast. And secondly, as we consider more directly from the text, boasting in the cross. So as to the first, then what is it to boast? The word that Paul uses, here translated glory, is a word that means to boast, or you would be familiar with this language, to brag. Now, we have a struggle because we realize that bragging 99.9% of the time is wrong because it's self-focused, it's arrogant, it's proud. But the word has taken on a negative sense because it always terminates, or usually terminates, upon an object that is insufficient to give indeed warrant to the bragging. All that this word means is to testify of the excellence of a thing. And so notice, for instance, Paul says, I'm not going to glory. Let it never be that I glory. Well, not absolutely but that I never glory in anything, that I never boast in anything, that I never brag about anything but the cross of Christ Jesus. Paul has used this word in an earlier epistle, 1 Corinthians and chapter 1. And you'll see as it's before us, verse 31, verse 29 and following, that no flesh should glory. There's the word that no flesh should boast in His presence. But of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Remember, we saw this very idea in Jeremiah chapter 9. Let not the wise boast of his wisdom, the rich of his wealth, the strong one of his strength, But let him boast in this. Let him glory in this. That he knows me. This is the idea. Fundamentally, the expression of boasting is to heap praise upon something or someone. It's to highlight and focus on the excellence that is before our perception. So we can see this in earthly ways. There are debates about 
who's the greatest athlete or who's the greatest athlete in this sport or that sport. And instantly, if you wish to get people going, just contend that somebody's the best. And then what will happen? No, no, no. Well, in this person's day, they did this, that, and the other thing when the rules were different. Well, in this person's day, this person did that, this, and the other thing. Who is the greatest uh, military mind? Who is the greatest leader of nations? And there are all sorts of banter and bickering and arguments that start to come up. The idea is men have a perception of one's greatness. And either through personal attachment or study, they have seen something of the greatness of this one, whether in sports or education or in government or whatever other sphere it may be, that we start to say, well, this one stands higher above others. So we use the language sometimes, that one is head and shoulders above his peers. Now, of course, there are times where that's physically the case. Saul, King Saul, was one who excelled others in height, in strength, in beauty. He was one who was head and shoulders above others. But here's the problem, and what an illustration it is. Israel was looking at the outward man. You remember the contrast between Saul and David? And even the prophet sort of gets caught up in this a bit as he visits Jesse's house. Because God has said, listen, the future king is in Jesse's house. And so Jesse calls his children, these strong men, and the prophet's going through, and God says, it's not this one, it's not that one. And all that are there goes through, and of course, in the end, it's none of them. And the prophet says to Jesse, is there not yet one more? And remember Jesse's idea, well, there is one, but he's the youngest. He's out keeping the sheep, we'll call him. And God actually says, you know, man looks on the outward, but God looks on the inward. God sees within. There's a lesson there for us. Not to get caught up in all of the things that the world is enamored by. Outward beauty, outward riches. The disciples have it happen when they're passing by buildings. And they say, Lord, see what buildings are these. Look at the wonder of their architecture. Look at the brilliance of wisdom and skill that brought these things to pass. What's going on? They're casting light on something that's caught their attention. It's not that they're boasting in themselves, but they're, as it were, heaping praise upon something that has caught their affection. And apart from God's grace, the things that catch our affections are almost always passing things vanity. The very things that God warns against. Wealth, strength, we could add, of course, with strength, health. And so you see all of the enamorment of people with their workout regimens and their uh, diets and other such things and the way they talk of these things and so forth, their strength. All of these things are taking place and men find delight in them and they think that these are better than others And so they express their boasting of it. The cause of it is because one has perceived excellence in the thing that he boasts in. And so it, of course, is pretty common that we see men most of the time boasting of things with which they have a part. And so it's their sports team they boast in. It's their business that they boast in. It's their family that they boast in. It's their children that they boast in. And so they love to highlight the things that they perceive as excellent, especially when they themselves have some interest in it. Keep this in mind. Men love to boast, and they will often point out things that aren't so directly about them because who can stomach a person that goes on and on and on about themselves. But it can be acceptable if they're boasting about something with which they have a part, but it's not so directly themselves. However, what was true of Nebuchadnezzar can be true of men still. He walks out and sees the empire before him, and he says, Is this not Babylon, which I have made? 
There's the essence of boasting. The greatness of the object perceived. And oh, how it subtly works itself in us and puffs up pride in our hearts. This is what it is to boast. However, boasting is not in and of itself sinful. It's sinful when it casts light upon something that cannot sustain the praise, that cannot sustain the boast. You can think of it this way. A teenager who's in a small uh, circumstance of relationships may stand out as the bright student. And so they begin to become pretty uh, high and mighty in their own mind. Or someone who is in a neighborhood sports league may be the standout athlete. And so they start to think of themselves as something. And yet they enter into the broader spheres of the next level and they see that though they were greater than the others in their neighborhood or school or whatever else, they are inferior to others who excel them. We speak of big fish, small bowl. They look big compared to the circumstances, but when you get them in other circumstances, well, they are shown to be wanting. This is true of the majority of men's boasting. They boast of things that in one context may look big, but when it's compared against that which is truly excellent, it's shown to be wanting. Why is this? Because the majority of boasting of men is against, or rather it ignores, the things of God. When it is that boasting is focused upon God and giving God the praise it's then that boasting finds its right place. Well, we turn then to consider boasting in the cross. This is the thing Paul says, the one thing Paul says, indeed, the only thing Paul says he will ever boast in. Now, before we get into this more fully, notice that it's in opposition to these additional religious observances that the Judaizers are casting upon the Galatians. And so it's summarized in verse 12, as many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised. Do you hear the language of boasting? A fair display in the flesh. This public showing forth of beauty. Hear that display and it's testifying of boasting. They want you to be their cause of boasting. Look, we've brought more to submit to our view. We've brought more to submit to circumcision. But we can see something here. Doubtlessly, there were those who were teaching such things that had what we might call good intentions. Perhaps there were some who sincerely thought this was the right thing to do. They needed to be circumcised. We don't know. We don't mean to judge the intentions. But here's the relationship between the circumcision and the Christian church. They were deemed less than advanced compared to one who was circumcised and took on the observances of the Old Testament ceremonies. In other words, it's in the context of sanctification. It's saying you need this in order to mature and advance in the cause of Christ Jesus. So brethren, keep that in mind as Paul then says, God forbid that I should boast, that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, because it's that which makes sense of what follows, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Notice then, the thing in which Paul boasts, and thus Christians are to boast, is, as he says, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you were in Paul's day, that would be an astounding statement. The cross is the emblem of, of shame. It's not a silver or golden trinket that men and women wear about their necks. It's not something that decorated 
a church. Indeed, we can look today and we see buildings and if a cross is on it, we're likely to say, oh, that's a church. It wouldn't have come into the mind of the early Christians to put that as a decoration because it was indeed a mark of scandal. It was a mark of suffering, of agony, and so forth. We would as well think of putting a scaffold up on our buildings to say, look, this is what we rejoice in, or to get an electric chair put on our jewelry to be something that is, as it were, a decoration. The cross was the instrument of agonizing death. It was the display that one had power over another, that try as this one might, they could never remove themselves from the anguish that was being inflicted upon them. And Paul says, it's that in which I boast. I boast in that which the world looks upon as the very emblem of weakness. Because, brethren, once you're on the cross, you are being emptied of life. You are losing your life, most certainly in one of the most painful ways ever invented by the mind of man. It's Cicero the pagan who says that such was the shame and agony of the cross that it was a death that was worthy to be administered only unto a slave. That a full citizen should never undergo such shameful treatment of capital punishment. It was that for the lowest of classes was the thought by this great statesman and orator, reflective doubtlessly of the majority of the Roman Empire. The idea is, when Paul says, I will glory only in the cross, he's testifying something quite strongly. I will glory, I will boast in what the world deems weak. It's what he said already, isn't it? When he mentions, of course, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the weakness and the foolishness of God. He says in verse 18 of that, 1 Corinthians 1, he says, The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. He says, quoting uh, from Scripture, it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And notice, he says, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness. We have to get our minds around this because the cross to us is instinct something that we hold in high esteem. But when we realize what the cross signified and on what the cross or what happened on the cross, we start to see what Paul is getting at. I will boast, I will glory in that which the world deems weakness. But it's not just the cross generically, it's the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is significant. It's the cross of Christ that is his focus. Why is that? Well, he indicates it's by whom or by which the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. He identifies benefits that flow to us by the cross of Christ. In other words, he's boasting in Christ and his work which brings us benefit. What are the benefits that come to us from the cross of Christ? Well, there are many. We can think, of course, as we did this morning, that by the cross our guilt is answered. Remember, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And as we said, there's much that goes into it, but it's because of sin. Reckoned unto Christ, he is made to be sin who knew no sin. We can say it as we said this morning. The answer that every Christian can say to that question is, the reason that Christ is undergoing such suffering, such torment, such anguish, is because of me. I am, in one sense, the cause of it. Not the only cause, because it's the love of God to me that brought Christ to be so crucified. And one fundamental blessing that comes to us 
is that it's by Christ's work on the cross that our guilt is remitted, that our sin is forgiven. But notice that Paul is focusing upon one unique feature. He says it's by the cross of Christ that the world is crucified unto me. Something transpires on the cross that, Christ, that Paul notes. That by virtue of what Christ accomplishes, and by virtue of our being united to Him by grace through faith now, it is, as it were, that the world is put to death unto me. I no longer live for the world. It's a dead thing. It's something that has been put to death to me. The lights and the scents and the sights and the desires of the world are now a dead thing to me because Christ has so put those things to death for me that they no longer have compelling force over me. Christ alone is my compelling cause. Christ alone is the reason for which I live. Christ alone is the cause of my speech and actions and desires. But he also says that it is by Christ that I am crucified to the world. Through Christ, my desires are as it were put to death toward the world. The world by the cross is shown to be what it is. It's emptiness. It's vanity. Because such is the witness of Christ on the cross in testifying of what is truly significant. Do you remember hearing when Christ says, there is one thing needful? The cross is the open and public display of that truth. God sends His Son to bring to pass the one thing needful. Paul, having seen that, and the cross being, as it were, the pulpit of that in one sense, Paul now sees the whole world differently. I don't live for the pomp and circumstance of men's praise. That's utterly meaningless to me. I don't live for the self-aggrandizing movement of my life in this world. All of that's been seen to be of nothing to me. Because what Christ has come and accomplished for me has shown that the world is empty. The world is not my goal. The advancement of the world is not my end. What I see is that Christ and His cross testifies that there is something far above, far superior to what the world could ever provide. Why is it that Christ so suffered on the cross? To reconcile us to God. To give unto us eternal life. He testifies elsewhere, I go, and if I go, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may be with me where I am. And so the cross is, as it were, this multifaceted testimony of both the emptiness of this world and of the glorious inheritance of the world to come. Now you keep that in mind and you can ask this question. In addition to what Christ has done, what must we do in order to obtain these blessings? Now we don't mean our works necessary. Works are necessary, but they're necessary as the evidence of faith. We don't mean is holiness necessary or not. No, holiness is necessary as the evidence of grace. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, not of works, as any man should boast. You're saved by grace through faith. Notice as Paul says, unto good works. So works are linked with grace. But when we ask the question, what must you do in addition to what Christ has accomplished in order to obtain life everlasting? The answer is absolutely, fundamentally, Nothing. Nothing. Because Christ has done it all. Christ has obtained everything by His cross. Everything the Christian needs is secured by the cross of Christ. You say, time out. 
Are you talking just about the realm of justification? Is everything obtained for me there? Oh, it is. But brethren, everything needed for your sanctification is obtained by Christ. He is purchasing everything. He's making payment for everything by the cross. There's no religious observance you need to add in order to have a right to all of the treasures that are held forth to us in salvation. Anyone who comes and says otherwise and says, here's the way to obtain it, add this, do that, turn here, turn there, is ignoring that the cross is the purchase of every blessing for the Christian. This is why Paul says earlier in 1 Corinthians 1, as we've already read, that Christ has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. This is why he says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9, ye are complete in Him. There's nothing else that you need. You have Christ. Does this mean the Christian is not to concern himself or herself with growing in holiness? No, not, we don't mean that at all. Paul doesn't mean this at all. What he's saying is the way of advance, the way of growth, is by Christ crucified for us. This starts to make sense of what Paul says in Romans 6, 7, and 8 when he talks of our being united to Christ, when he tells us that we are indeed crucified together with Christ. So the life I now live in the flesh, I no longer live it, of course, but it's Christ who lives it in me. I live by Christ. Christ lives in me. Romans 6, 7, and 8, Galatians, the whole epistle in many ways. We have it in Ephesians. We have it in 1 Corinthians. It is throughout the message of the New Testament that the way not only of peace and pardon, but the way of uh, growing in holiness is by the purchase of Christ Jesus. This is why Paul isn't just boasting in Christ over pardon, but he's boasting in Christ for everything. There's no attainment in your life before God that you'll be able to say, God, I thank you for the 99.999% of everything here, but let's be honest, it's because of what I did that I gained this 0.0001%. We can't say that at all. Any attainment, any blessing that we are given is given us by the purchase of Christ Jesus. So the cross delivers us from the guilt. That's justification of our sin. But it's Christ crucified and we united to Him that He likewise delivers us from the power of sin. He delivers us from the vanity of this world. He delivers us from the foolishness of self-righteousness. And thereby, He delivers us from all of those accursed additions that any man would dare bring to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever their pedigree, if their pedigree is anything short of thus saith the Lord, it is a false pedigree. It can go back to the 300s, to the 200s, to the 100s. It can go back to 3000 B.C. It doesn't matter. Because all of that which is invented of men is utterly insufficient to apply Christ to us. The things that we need are the means of grace which Christ ordains by which He conveys Himself to us. And so Paul, in testifying of this, is doing far more than just testifying of, you know what, when I'm in public, I'm going to say things like, God be praised. We need to do that in public. We need to tell others about the glory of Christ. He's actually orienting the whole of his Christian life to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want to grow in faith, in hope, and love? you must cling to the Christ who was crucified for you. You must know communion with Him who was crucified to you because it's only by Him that the world is crucified to you and you to
to the world. This boasting in the cross is the boasting in Christ all-sufficient for all that we need in this life to live for His praise. Is your marriage struggling? You need Christ. Is your uh, attitude struggling at work? You need Christ. You don't need a new trinket. You don't need a new self-help plan. You don't need this 10-step plan and this idea and that idea. You don't need to rediscover a new tradition or a new action that was ancient. You don't need all of those things that not only the world advertises. You think of the foolishness of the world's advertisements. Eat this. Why should I eat that? Well, the Mayans ate it and they were warriors. Well, all the Mayans are dead. Who cares what they ate? What was their life expectancy? What was their health? It doesn't matter. But brethren, the church has adopted that. What do you need to the secret of holy living? Well, we've rediscovered this Celtic spirituality, and this is what they did. If you do this, you'll be better off. What do you need to see yourself grow in humility? Well, we discovered this ancient liturgy, which we're going to bring into the church, and we're going to administer it, and you're going to be better for it. We say, are you kidding me? The church is blessed and saved and sanctified by this, Christ crucified for me. What do I need? I need the knowledge of Christ crucified. I need communion with Christ who is crucified. I need the knowledge of the riches that have been opened to me by the death of the Son, that the inheritance promised to us is now mine. Could you imagine the son of some one on the list of billionaires going about in their sphere of friends saying, you know what, I've got tough times. I'd really like to buy a sandwich, but I just have no money in my pocket. What am I going to do? The friends would look at them and say, are you kidding me? Like, your father is literally a name I can look up on the internet, and he comes up fifth, sixth, seventh on the list of billionaires. Go talk to your dad and ask him for a handful of money so you can buy some food. Christians today are walking around in this notion of, I'm sort of down on my luck. What am I going to do? How am I going to find more joy? How am I going to find more holiness? How am I ever going to overcome these trials? What am I going to do to find meaning in my life? Oh, well, here's a book that's on the bestsellers list. Here's a sermon that's getting all sorts of attention. Here's a new liturgy that people have discovered. Here's an ancient practice. Here's a custom. Here's a tradition. Let's get this and make the Christian life full again. It's blasphemous to think that way. Christ crucified is the boast of the Christian. If I have Christ crucified, if I have the knowledge of cross, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, I have the means to conquer the world. Isn't it astounding in Revelation? These are they who overcame how? Well, you know, they got in their monasteries and they dusted off the shelves and they found this ancient thing. No, they overcame by the blood of Christ Jesus. Every temptation in your life, every trial in your life, every growth for your soul has an answer in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you understand that, you'll then start to understand why it is Paul boasts in it. We have actually that which causes us to conquer everything the world can throw at us. We don't say that carelessly. The world can throw a lot at us. Paul actually indicates this in verse 17. He says, listen, let no man trouble me anymore. Why? Because I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. This isn't the superstitious nonsense of stigmata, as the Roman Catholics make, as if he were somehow bearing these miraculous signs of the crucifix. Not that at all. He's been beaten. He's been stoned. He's been 
He has his marks of suffering. What gave Paul the ability to endure that? And not just endure it, but to endure it in such a way that he kept on preaching the gospel, living for Christ. He's told us, because of Christ crucified, that by his cross, the whole world and all of its glitz, all of its attraction, that is, as it were, Pilgrim's Progress tells us, empty baubles which are calling for the world in its vanity fair. And all of the people flocking to those trinkets, they're deceived. They're pointing at something which is vanity. And they're saying, this is where joy is found. Paul says, the world has been seen for what it is by the cross of Christ. And I, by grace, have come to see the King who in love has given Himself for me. It's by seeing Christ crucified that then we are brought to see the overwhelming glory of what is ours by Him. Not what is ours by our insight, not what is ours by our attainment, not what is ours by our collective reasoning, but what is ours by the cross of Christ. You remember the Lord's Supper, Christ says, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. These words need to be weighed well. The New Testament is this inheritance of grace. You see it in Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, and elsewhere repeated in the book of Hebrews. The things that are promised there, fellowship with God, life everlasting, forgiveness of sins, the law of God inscribed upon our hearts that we would walk in the way of God. In short, the sum and substance of Christianity is now given to us by the purchase of Christ's blood. What do you lack in having Christ? The answer is, I lack nothing. So what's Paul saying? He's saying, I've seen the thing that bears the, with propriety the greatest boasting ever. So men love to boast about this new insight, that new insight. Paul says, all of it's trash. You are glorying over trash. By the cross, I see where true glory is found. I see what truly is dignified. I see where true wisdom is displayed. I see where true power is manifested. And it's by the cross of Christ. So Paul boasts in this cross. Now brethren, as we close, here is something to examine in ourselves. Is this boasting in the cross of Christ at all known to us? And again, there's propriety in asking, is there that verbal boasting? Paul was one who did so, as he told others of Christ. But we can ask, is there that real and personal glorying in our lives. We face, as it were, the temptations of the world, and by the cross we see that gives nothing. It's empty. We see the new take, the hot take on the new Christian tradition that needs to be done. And we say that is nothing. Why? Because I know where true worth is found. I know where true grace is found. I know where all salvation is found. And it's found by the cross of Christ. If we have this boasting, it will show itself in our living. It will show itself in the way that we live the Christian life. Because it will show itself in a humble dependence upon Christ only. It will display itself in our earnest... It will show itself in our listening to the Gospel preached, in our reading of the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. It will show itself in our attendance upon the means of grace because we're seeing it's by these means that the cross is held forth to us and all of the benefits are there. It will show itself in our faith 
appropriating those blessings and cleaving to them, pleading with God for the provision. And why should I give it to you? Oh, the ready answer supplied, because the cross of Jesus Christ has purchased it for me. It will show itself when people say, why won't you lighten up and just live like we live? Why won't I do that? Oh, we don't boast about our dignity. We don't boast about this or that. We boast about Christ. Think of how Paul puts it elsewhere. He says that we are a people purchased. We are bought with a price so that we are no longer our own. But we belong body and soul to Christ. What is that purchase? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. When we see the cross of Jesus Christ and its central influence to the whole of our lives, we have then the cause for all holy living, for all humility, for all love, for all generosity by the cross of Christ. Shall we boast in Christ? Well, we must perceive its excellence. We must see that though the world counts it foolish, Though the world counts it weak, this is the wisdom and the power of God into salvation. If we do not see that, we'll never boast of it. It's akin to you hear people talking of a sport you don't know the slightest about. In America, perhaps, we think of rugby. And they talk about, oh, this rugby player is the best ever and we don't have the faintest idea of how the sport is played. So it means nothing to us. There's the possibility of being, as it were, a church member, hearing other Christians boast in Christ, and it meaning nothing to us. Why? Because we don't see the excellence ourselves in the cross. And so our first and greatest need is that God would open our eyes to see the all-surpassing excellency of Christ and Him crucified, the love displayed, the pardon purchased, the sanctification purchased, the whole of the new covenant opened unto us. But brethren, we must also embrace it and rely upon it always. Because it's only insofar as we do that ultimately do we truly come to realize the dignity, the value, the beauty, and the blessing of Christ crucified. So what is our need? It's to go before Christ with our needs, whether a guilty conscience, whether sin in our lives, whether trials before us, temptations surrounding us, and saying, O Christ who is crucified, bless that You would make the world crucified unto me and I to the world, and by faith I would know the all-surpassing excellence of You as my Savior. Would you stand with me for prayer?